But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he, he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring bound to Jerusalem. Now he went on his way and approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And, from the, and, from the, and for three days he went without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there were disciples at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look at a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might, be, he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he, is, he has authority from the chief priest, chief, chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road of which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was, he was strengthened. Thank you, Nathan. I want to make sure I turn down my microphone. I think I did, right? Everybody hear me? Boy, we're a non-communicative congregation this evening. I think I, I heard people online more clearly than I heard people in here. Tell you what, I really love these testimonies, and if you are interested in giving a testimony of how God has bid you come to Him, has brought you out of certain destruction in life, then please contact one of the pastors here. We would love to get um, you in front of that camera as well. We'll coach you through everything um, and how to tell your story, and you're going to learn a little bit about that actually in this message, but thank you. I love... Dave and Kim, they are friends of mine, and um, I've watched the Lord uh, transform you guys. I've had a front row seat to that, so I am so thankful for that. And if you're online, you missed watching Jake Millen trip his way to the pew where he's sitting. He looked very much like our President Biden entering a plane. Um, first thing I thought of. All right, I'm done with politics. Here we go. Acts chapter 9, and uh, I hope you have your Bibles open. Listen, you know I can't see you if you're online, so you've got to get your Bible open as well. And right now, just get up out of your lazy boy recliner, go get your Bible, get it open to Acts 9, and uh, let's all be in God's Word. So if you're here, and you're just staring at me this, this entire message, I know for a fact then you do not have your Bible open. So 
I am prone to calling you out on that. So get your Bible open. If, by the way, you don't own a Bible or have a Bible um, any longer, we would love to give you one. So just get to me or Pastor Matthew after this uh, message and uh, after this service, and we'll get you a Bible. Acts chapter 9, John Newton, I'm sure you've heard of him, or at least you might have heard of him. He was born in the year 1725 to a very godly mother who unfortunately died when he was seven years old. And at seven years old, he went to sea with his sea captain father. And he grew as he matured even more rebellious than he was at age nine. It just kept going deeper and deeper into depravity. And by age 19, John Newton was pressed into service. He's from England. Aboard the HMS Harwich of the English Royal Navy, but in his defiant spirit, he deserted, and he was caught, and he was flogged, and he was put in shackles. But his immoral and his arrogant spirit, instead of getting better, just worsened. In fact, he became obsessed with leading as many people into rebellion as he could. He was a horrific Example to his peers and even those older. At age 22, he transferred to the Greyhound ship. And on that ship, on the way back to England, they got caught in a storm that they thought they were probably going to go down from. He had just been reading Proverbs 1, where it says, Because I have called you and you refuse to listen, I also will laugh at your calamity. He had also been reading other material, a book that just seemed to underscore that. And between what he was reading and the storm that he was in, it sparked a fear of God in him. An awe of God is what that means. And he cried out to him, but Newton would later say that's not really the moment where God sealed him for his service. That was a moment on his way to that point. But he still did not submit to Christ despite making some positive moral changes in his life. Here's one of them. He served as a captain on slave ships. You know why he said later that he did that? He wanted to restrain the worst excesses of the slave trade that he had witnessed. So he wanted to be a sea captain for a slave ship to try to control how cruelly people treated slaves. But Jesus finally and firmly took hold of him. And he repented of his life of rebellion and he left the sea to actually pastor a parish in England. And he would later work with William Wilberforce to help abolish the hated slave trade altogether. It was during this time that he wrote what would become the most beloved hymn ever in Christendom. It's called Amazing Grace. And the first stanza, you know it, it goes like this. Amazing Grace how sweet the sound, are you repeating it in your mind as I read it, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. See, we're about to meet a man whose life embodied this hymn 1,700 years before it was even written. 
And I would invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 9, and let's read and be introduced to this man called Saul. And here's what it says. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, his name was Caiaphas, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, who was Saul? Let's get a little bit of a background, because I'm assuming that some of you may not really know who this man is. So I want to give you a little bit of a contextual introduction. He's a Hellenistic Jew. All that really means is that he is a Jewish man, 100%, but he wasn't born in Israel. He was born outside of Israel. And being born outside of Israel meant that his life was immersed in the Greek culture, the Greek language. That's why he is a Hellenistic Jew. He was part of the spread of Hellenism, part of the Greek culture spread. But he moved to Israel when he was fairly young, most believe. He became a disciple, for fact, of the great rabbi of his day. His name was Gamaliel. He actually is featured earlier in the book of Acts. Paul, or Saul rather at this point, was educated. The guy could speak four languages. He's incredibly brilliant. And he burned with a zeal for the law of God, for Judaism, which is the religion of the Jews. So whenever I mention Judaism, what you need to know, this is the way of life, the way of belief for the Jewish people. He rose over his peers. He was going up the ladder. He hated the disciples of Jesus. He viewed them as a threat to Judaism with all of their claims that the Messiah, the, the anointed one, the Christ, the one that would save God's people, the Messiah had come and was crucified on a cross and rose from the dead three days later. He hated all of the people that believed that. And it consumed him with an obsessional focus to destroy, look what it says, those belonging to the way. What is the way? That's the first time you've seen it in Acts. It's a name for the early church. It's a name for the Christians. It likely was inspired by, and I hope you hear this, John 14, 6, where Jesus declared, I am the way and the truth and the life, that verse goes on, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So if you're here right now and you're seeking, you're searching, you're wondering, what is this Christian thing all about? Well, I'm going to tell you that Jesus, who is God, fully God, fully man, came to earth to make a way to the Father. He says no one can find their way to the Father but through him. You see, Christianity, and it makes some people squirm, is extremely exclusive. To name the way that evokes the idea that Christianity is not just getting your ticket for the great train that will take you to heaven if you sing it like Johnny Cash. It's more than that. It's about getting on a journey. 
And the entrance to that journey is through a narrow gate called Jesus. And once you go through that gate called Jesus by faith, by believing in him, by trusting that he really is God, he really does love you, he really did make a way for you to be saved, you're on that journey. And that journey isn't over, it just begins. And it's leading to, and it is in fact, a road of life. Now, to give you a little more context, a very, very large group of Jewish people had settled this area called Damascus. In fact, in AD 66, 10 to 20,000 Jewish people would be murdered by the Roman people to put down an uprising. So this is Damascus, and not only were there Jewish people there, a lot of the Christians fleeing from the persecution that Saul was executing, they fled to Damascus. It's 150 miles north of Jerusalem. It's a six-day journey. And here comes Saul with authorization from the high priest, accompanied by a group of soldiers from the temple. He starts that journey to Damascus, and he is determined to once and for all stamp out the church. But he never anticipated what would happen as he neared the outskirts of Damascus. Look at your text in verse 3. Suddenly a a light from heaven shone around him. Now time out for a second. You want to know for a second what liberal scholars do? Here's what they do. They explain this light as being a lightning bolt. That there's a lot of electrical storms, a lot of thunderstorms in Damascus, which, by the way, is true because of Mount Hermon, which is right above it. And what happened to Saul was a lightning bolt, and it seared his retinas. That's what they're going to tell you. And if you don't buy that one, believe me, they've got a litany of other excuses or explanations. Another one says that he had heat stroke. And then in that heat stroke, he saw pinpricks of light. I think, friend, if I could just encourage you to do so, just believe what the Scripture says. A light from heaven, meaning originating from God, shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, if you have a red-letter edition of your Bible, then you'll see that that's written in red. So this now, to the reader, is the words of Jesus, is the saying of Jesus. Now, a friend of Saul, who would later become Paul, is Luke. And Luke wrote the book of Acts that we are studying. And Luke is going to include in this book of Acts... Paul's testimony of coming to Jesus three times. And it really wants to slow us down for a moment and ask ourselves the question, have you ever shared, Christian, your testimony of faith in Jesus? Now, I'm really asking you that. I'm really asking you to deliberate with this. Have you ever told someone how God has saved you? It's amazing how many Christians never have.
I have a lot of Christians that say to me, and I hear it all the time, I don't have an exciting story of how God saved me. It's really not worth sharing. Well, if that is you, and if that's how you think, then you do not realize how amazing God's grace has been in your life. Do you realize that, the, that salvation to any sinner, salvation of any sinner, is a work of God that is more powerful and more glorious than the creation of the universe? Now listen, are you letting that go down into your soul? Do you really, really realize, do you truly believe that your salvation, Christian, was a greater work of God, a more glorious work of God than when he brought all things into existence? Well, you may not have been a slave trader like Newton. You may not have been a murderer like Saul, but you were just as lost you were just as spiritually dead as the two of them were. For the Bible tells us you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is true of every single human being that has lived apart from Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to hear what I'm about to tell you because I've heard this so often and I even heard it this last week. The world angrily denies this claim that every person is spiritually lost and dead in sin. The world vehemently reacts against that. In fact, many people typically in the last few decades, have changed John Newton's line in Amazing Grace, the one that we just read, you saved a wretch like me, they've changed it to saved and strengthened me, or saved a soul like me, or thirdly, saved and set me free. They cannot stomach the idea that they are a wretched sinner. That sensitivity training that you are likely getting at work with its recognition programs are all stemming from a history-long humanism that teaches that every single person is inherently good. And it disagrees starkly with what God said in Romans 3. No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. This is God's answer to humanism, which, by the way, was launched in Genesis chapter 3 by the devil himself. And God declares to his creation a very hard truth. Every person is or every person was spiritually dead, God-defying rebel. It is why God's grace is so absolutely amazing. We simply, utterly do not deserve it. You see, the idea that everybody is a sinner, everybody is has fallen short of the mark of God is the idea of depravity. 
And depravity by T.S. Eliot went like this. The enemy is already within the gates. There wasn't a virus that came into you from outside. You were born with this contagion called sin. And it resulted in a life of cosmic defiance to God and a self-orientation that makes you really want to please you more than anybody else. But Saul did not believe that. Saul did not see himself like that. He was quite impressed with himself. He was very impressed with his righteousness. In fact, he touts his resume later in Philippians chapter 3. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, and blameless. This is his resume. This is how Paul viewed himself when he was Saul. This is how he saw himself before Jesus spoke to him. He says, my life looked good, God. You have to be impressed with me. You have to be proud of me. And I'm going to defend you, God, from all of those that belong to this sect, this way. And I'm going to crush the church for your sake. He truly believed that he was working on behalf of God, murdering Christians. Friends, I'm going to tell you what we do. And if you are here tonight... Or if you are watching this online and you have not yet brought yourself to the cross or you have not been drawn there by the Spirit of God, you have not yet turned to God through Jesus Christ and confessed your sin and pleaded for his salvation, if you've not yet done that, here is where you are. You are hopelessly caught and snared and in shackles to your sin. You have freedom waiting for you. It is at the cross. It is your only means of freedom. It is there and God will give it to you when you ask. His grace will not look at all the things you've done wrong. In fact, it's because of all the things you've done wrong that His grace is called grace. But here's what you do and here's what I did and here's what everybody does. They always compare themselves to somebody worse than them. And when you compare yourself to someone that is worse than you, you really don't look that bad and you really don't look like you're in that much need for salvation. But the Bible tips it the other direction. And the Bible always compares yourself to Jesus. And all of a sudden, when you're compared to Jesus, even the good people in here, even the morally upright people in here, even the religious people in here, don't look so good when you don't have the blood of Christ covering you. But Saul later understood that he was acting in ignorance. For he said in 1 Timothy, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. But God is about to open his eyes and what Saul would see would be anything but self-righteousness. For God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Listen, if you're here right now and you think you've got to clean up your act just a little bit more before you give your life to God, read that verse. God wants to show his love now while you are yet sinners. All we like sheep, Isaiah said, have gone astray. We've all turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's laid it all on Jesus. See, this is Saul. When he was on the Damascus road, he's an enemy of God. He's a sheep who had gone astray. He is breathing threats, verse 1, and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Yet the God of amazing grace will draw him to himself, and he does so on that Damascus road. But now, with Damascus below him, Mount Hermon behind him, he is dropped to his knees by a light, and he hears a voice. Why are you persecuting me? Christian, I want to encourage you. If you're going to live your life faith first, I hope you caught how I said that. If you're going to live your life faith first, you're going to be persecuted. And when you are persecuted, the one who's truly being persecuted is Jesus. He's the ultimate target of it. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he is stunned. He's so stunned that he asks in verse 5, Who are you, Lord? That word, sir, it can mean Lord, it can mean sir. Who are you, sir? And the answer could not have been more shocking to him. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Just imagine Saul. Listen, don't spectate with the word of God. When you read the word of God or you hear it preached, put yourself in Saul's sandals. Can you imagine what's going through his mind, what blazes through his mind? I can only imagine he's probably thinking, Jesus, but you're the one that I hate. You're the one that cannot be alive. You were killed. Your resurrection is a myth. He's going to later understand in his life what happened in that life-changing moment. He'll actually say it in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. See, it's a greater miracle, friends, to bring life to a spiritually dead soul than bring life to a physically dead body. Saul was a murderous tyrant. He is on his way to persecute Christians. He is saved by Jesus, the God of grace. And John Newton sums it up because that, that song keeps going. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear." The hour I first believed. I'm telling you, Saul could have sung this. But his story is not over, for he would later write, For we are his workmanship, credit, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God be 
prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, Christian, I want to tell you something, and I want to teach you something. I asked you a moment ago, have you ever shared your testimony of how God saved you? And I would tell you if your answer is no, that you likely want to know, how do I even do that? How do I do that? Well, I'm going to tell you what we see in Scripture over and over. You see a testimony given in three parts, and here they are. You ready? If you're writing them down, I'd encourage you to do it and frame your testimony around it. Who you were before God's grace saved you, number one. You start there. See, the good news looks so good because the bad news was so bad. Who you were before God's grace saved you is your first part. And then you move into, well, how did God save you by his grace? How did God save you by his grace? But your story is continuing. Your story is not over. And your story includes the third part. What is his grace making you become? What is his grace making you become? In other words, what is God revealing to you that his purpose for your life is? That's part of your testimony. You see, it's not just about salvation. The gospel is about the whole way. Or what the Native Americans would say, the Jesus road. It's not just the gate entrance to the way. It's the whole thing. It's the journey of God. Who were you before God saved you? How did he save you? And what is he doing by his grace to show you his purpose? Because God saved you for a purpose that you would partner with him to bring life to dead sinners. Every single one of our purposes find their common denominator with that statement. Every single one of them to help bring life to dead sinners. Christian, you have a story of God's amazing grace, and I'm telling you, it yearns to be told. But the story is not done with Saul. There's another person in this story. His name is Ananias. Look at verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. Now listen to this response. And he said, here I am, Lord. Friend, is that your response when God calls out to you? Is that your response? Lord, what do you want now? I'm a little busy here. I've got my life I want to live. I'll give you my retirement. Or I'm still a teenager. Come back to me when I'm 18 and I'll get more serious with you. Or even worse, Lord, I don't want to even hear from you because I am so angry at my spouse. I know what you're going to ask me to do. I'm not ready for it. Just stop talking. You know what? That's not Ananias. Ananias was a servant. And part of the evidence that you have truly come to Christ, Christian, is that you understand he is not just your Savior, he is your Lord. And your life exists to serve him. Here I am, Lord. That's the hard attitude of one who will know God's purposes and be greatly used by him. I'm going to ask you a question 
And I want you to answer honestly. You're the only one that's ever going to hear this answer, you and God. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. So just be as super honest as you can. Do you truly understand the purposes of God for your life? Do you truly understand the purposes of God for your life? I mean, does not Acts later say, and when we get there, you'll see it, that when God's purposes for David were completed, David fell asleep. He died. If you're alive, sometimes I wonder some of you are. If you are alive, you've got a purpose. And do you know that purpose? And you want to know the very beginning of discovering that purpose? It's having a heart that says, here I am, Lord. Because if you won't say that to God, he's not going to reveal to you why he has you on this planet. Jesus called Ananias. And Ananias said, here I am, Lord. How can I serve it is the heart attitude of a servant. And Jesus called him to do something terrifying, verse 11. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. If you ever go to Damascus, you'll see that street. It's still there. It's been archaeologically preserved. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. That's all he had to say. Because Ananias knew who this was. And he knew Saul was coming. Word had gotten there before Saul did. And Ananias explained it to Jesus. Jesus, maybe you don't know something, but Saul is actually on his way here to murder us, to take us back to Jerusalem. Men and women, he doesn't care. He wants to stamp out the church. And Jesus has to tell him, verse 15, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You see, this is God's purpose for Saul. And Ananias had to learn to trust in God's amazing grace for this life just as Newton sang it. In fact, Newton sang, the Lord hath promised good to me. Remember this in Amazing Grace, his word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Now Ananias is singing the song. Well, what's he do? Verse 17, he departs and he enters the house where Saul was and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, I love how he says that. That's so inviting. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and he was baptized. Saul, who is going to be renamed to Paul, Later said of Ananias, in recounting this whole story, he says in Acts 22, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see his righteousness, this is what Ananias tells him, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of whom you have seen and heard. This is what Ananias says to Saul. Now, Christian, listen, do you want to know your purpose in life? 
God will draw people to him who are spiritually dead. You will be the guide showing them the way. God will draw to himself people who are spiritually lost, who cannot make it to the Father. And Christian, you and I are the guides that will show them the way. We are the ones that will explain the way, the road to Jesus. And it's amazingly powerful when Christians discern the purposes of God for other people. I've seen people change careers when Christians speak purpose into someone's life. I've seen marriages come back from the brink of divorce from Bible-centered guidance. I worked with a person years ago who climbed to the top of the George Washington Bridge ready to jump to his death. I, met, I worked with another person that same summer who went into his trailer and took a kerosene can and doused himself in the trailer and sat down, crossed legs with a match in his hand. And both of those men heard God say, I love you and I have a purpose for your life. And it saved their lives. See, people who have experienced great grace breathe great grace into the needy hearts of others. People who have experienced great grace, was your life a wreck? Was your life a mess? and you experience great grace from God, listen, you're going to be used by God to breathe great grace into other people. I will guarantee it. It's why I believe Saul, Paul, would become the greatest defender of God's grace that the world has ever, ever Known, And he would begin nearly every letter he wrote in the New Testament with this. Grace to you and peace from God. This is a man who breathed great grace. You know, there are multiple versions of that hymn, Amazing Grace. And usually, they end with a stanza that Newton actually did not write. It was written by Harriet Beecher Stowe for her classic book called Uncle Tom's Cabin. And in that book, she wrote this final hymn, and it's been incorporated into most renditions since. And it goes like this. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Christian, I'm about a minute from being done, so will you give me every bit of your attention? You have a story of God's grace to tell to other people, and you're going to be able to sing of it for eternity. And you may not have gotten saved by a blinding light and a voice from heaven, but your salvation is no less amazing and God's grace was no less needed for you than it was for John Newton, than it was for Saul. So you can tell of God's grace to every person you can. And it has the power to bring life to spiritually dead souls. But you've got to tell it. And if you came 
to this service either through our online portal or in the sanctuary right now and you do not know Jesus, you do not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, friends, I just want to tell you something. God is inviting you to the cross. And that invitation was made possible by the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who could become not only your Savior, but your Lord, and breathe life into you and give you a purpose for living. That's the Christian way. That's the Jesus road. And that's where you can go. But do you see that you are helplessly caught in your sins? You cannot defeat them. You cannot atone for them. Your good works will not outdo them. And God knows it. So he sent his son to die on your behalf and on my behalf. And if you will but just look to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you save my life? You will be saved. And you will have life forever. And you will breathe great grace. Amen? Father, I believe that. I believe it. I've experienced it, and I've seen so many people. Father, come to the cross and receive life. How could I not believe it? Even in the testimony that we saw this evening, two people as adults brought to the very end of their marriage, but brought to the end of their self-confidence as well. Lord, they turned to Jesus. Why? Because Elder Kirk from Shiloh was their guide. You were drawing Dave and Kim. Elder Kirk was the guide. And Lord, you are drawing people all over this world, even in the sanctuary perhaps, but Lord, certainly in the Lehigh Valley. And Lord, who are you going to use? Who will be the Ananiases that will say, here I am, Lord, and go tell them about Jesus? Father, may we stand up with a heart of service and be witnesses of Jesus to the end of the earth. Lord, would you help us with that? And I pray that as we leave this sanctuary, as people get off of this online service, Lord, that every single one of us, if we are not Christians, Lord, will we'll cry out to you. And if we are Christians, that we will learn to be a guide to show people the way. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.